Welcome to the PMNR Pocket Mentor, a podcast brought to you by the Association of Academic Physiatrists Medical Student Council. This podcast is a resource for medical students to learn more about physical medicine and rehabilitation and to guide them toward a successful career in the discipline. My name is Colin Byrne. In this episode, I had a conversation with Dr. Paul Winston. Dr. Winston is Medical Director for Rehabilitation and Transitions at Island Health in Victoria, British Columbia. He's an Assistant Professor at the University of British Columbia, co-founder of CANOSC, the Canadian Advances in Neuroorthopedics for Spasticity Congress, and President of the Canadian Association of PMNR. His research interests include novel treatments and best practices for spasticity and acute management of complex regional pain syndrome. You can follow Dr. Winston on Twitter at at Dr. Paul Winston. In this episode, we cover some spasticity basics. Dr. Winston describes what spasticity is, how it is assessed and graded, its complications, physical, pharmacologic, and surgical approaches to management, and how to differentiate severe spasticity from contracture. I hope you enjoy the show. Let's get moving. What is spasticity? So spasticity is a very difficult concept to understand, and the actual definition is changing. So for, the, for many decades, we've used the Lance definition, which is a velocity-dependent increase in tone, meaning the faster you move a limb, the more resistance to movement you will get. What we've really understood in the last decade or so is that its spasticity is a component of a lesion of the upper motor neuron syndrome, which causes an altered movement of a muscle. That is not easier to understand, but what it means is that some muscle groups will have a expected spasticity pattern. So after a stroke, a patient will have a resistance to movement. So you move the arm quickly and there's a catch, stop, and then you have to force it out to the rest of the range of motion. That's great for a, say, stroke patient, but someone with a spinal cord injury may have uncontrolled spasms in the leg. So at different times, their legs go into spasms there might be something called a spastic dystonia. So for a lot of patients, if you examine them seated, their toes are very loose in flexion and extension, but as soon as they start walking, they get this horrible either toe claw, so their toes claw under, or the, the great toe hitchhikes to the sky. That's a spastic dystonia because it's a movement disorder that's not with stiffness. So to understand spasticity, it's really a lesion of the upper motor neuron syndrome that causes unwanted movement patterns. In the most classic form, when I, when I teach spasticity, I ask people, and, and you can do it while we speak, is I want you to grip the tightest fists possible. I want you to rip your muscles, grab fists, and put them to your shoulders. And over the next, imagine 30 seconds, try to lean, move your hand forward and pick up something from the table in front of you, but gripping as hard as you can and moving in slow motion. So what you're experiencing is pain and stiffness in your muscle because the opposite muscle group won't relax. So functionally, spasticity really is resistance in muscle groups that won't relax while others are trying to fire. So everything's firing at once. So when your patient's trying to move, everything is contracting against them. And our goal in spasticity management is to get rid of the muscle contracture that you don't want to allow them to facilitate the muscle group that they do need. And uh, what is the most common uh, grading scale for spasticity? So we have several systems. So the first one would be the modified Ashworth scale, which is the most used scale. It really checks how much resistance there is to movement. So it's from one to including one plus all the way to four. 
and uh, the four means you can't move the limb anymore because it's so rigid. The one is a little bit of resistance with a catch and release, that's going to one plus, and then there's a gradient after. It is also very difficult to use. When you ask a group of people to evaluate, unless they're trained, it will vary significantly. Also associated with these upper motor neuron injuries is um, clonus, right? Yeah, so that's what makes it very hard to grade. And a lot of people say you can't grade strength in the presence of spasticity because in the middle of the movement, they might get clonus. So clonus is a repetitive movement uh, that is set off from the upper motor neuron syndrome. So many patients who have spasticity, you can't even evaluate the spasticity in the ankle because they get into this clonic pattern which will vibrate the foot and soon the whole leg is is hopping. So it it's very much an individualized, you have to touch, move the patient to assess their spasticity. What are the uh, main complications that people worry about in a patient with spasticity, like in the longer term? So one of the, the biggest things about spasticity is you want to make sure that they're not on a downward spiral of getting more and more spasticity with more and more muscle uh, fibrosis and more and more change to the point that they come to a fixed contracture. So not everyone. Some people actually develop a spasticity and their body will naturally hit a peak and improve. And there's a whole bunch of rating scales like the um, Shadok McMaster or Brunstrom scale that look at some people are able to break out of their spasticity and emerge. Um, but many people will just get more and more spastic over time to the point where you can't move it. It's stage four in the Ashworth. But most people stay in that medium range where it's spastic and doesn't change. Uh, there's a ton of work going on right now looking at architecture of muscle uh, based on different scales like the HECMAT scale of ultrasound or uh, muscle biopsies to understand why some people become so fibrotic so quickly and others, you look under ultrasound, their muscle still looks quite pristine after 10 years. How early should spasticity be treated? So I have a, a very a, implicit bias. I believe that you should treat spasticity as soon as possible. And I'm on a consensus for that. In It's not realistic for everyone to do this, but as a physiatrist that works within an acute care hospital, we're often asked to see the patients days after a stroke. Um, or a new onset of spinal cord injury, we see them developing spasticity immediately. And we train our therapists in the hospital and the nurses, as soon as you see someone who is having difficulty moving their limb due to resistance, not because of the flaccidity from the stroke, but suddenly you can't position the arm right, the wrist is stiff, we monitor it. So in my belief system, there's not a lot of evidence to support it, but there's an increasing body of literature is injecting people very early uh, with your treatment with botulinum toxins or phenol. You can break that cycle in the early phases while the brain is undergoing uh, neuroplasticity. And what we also find is you can go with a very low dose of toxin to change it, and then you can put on casting, bracing, try to have that patient as long stretched out as possible so while they're starting to remobilize, stand up, they are not dealing with short and contracted muscles. I personally believe it really stops the bad contracture from happening. So intervening early with one of these uh, multiple types of interventions, is Botox the most common uh, treatment for spasticity? Sure. So we, you know, we always say botulinum toxin because there's multiple ones on the market. Right. So in general, particularly in not just the Western world, much of the world, botulinum toxin has become available as treatment. Um, you do need something to break that cycle more than just therapy. So 
when I first started practicing, there were a lot of therapists that really, they were taught a very dogmatic approach to how to treat spasticity with movement. But the problem was, is it doesn't, it can't fight spasticity enough. So it has to be coupled with therapy. In the early phase, before someone develops contracture, chemo denervation is probably the best treatment. However, also a bracing or casting to maintain length. Uh, some people will do electrical stimulation in the, the anti antagonistic muscles to allow them to work. But we're starting to move into doing nerve blocks earlier and even other surgical procedures earlier in people whose spasticity becomes quite severe quite quickly. In the context of spasticity, there are also contractures, and I, I guess in, in treating, it's important to differentiate the two. Maybe if you could talk a little bit about differentiating them. So the uh, Lynn Turner Stokes, who's a very famous um, researcher out of the UK, and Jean-Michel Grassi out of France have written extensively on what's called the vicious cycle of spasticity. You have this uh, weakened limb that's going to change in its strength or not, you have the spasticity, which is causing disuse. So you start getting fibrosis and reorganization in muscles. So they call it the vicious cycle because in some people that precipitates and capitulates until you have a contracture of the joint. But then again, in the other populations, they, they maintain their length forever. Traditionally, the way to figure out if someone had a contracture is you reefed on the arm as hard as you could or the leg. You, you try to force range. Um, I think in most of the world, that's what we do. We, we just try to push the joint as far as we can. Most spastic limbs have what's called a fast catch when you move quickly and a slow maximum range of motion. So the range of motion technique we talked about scales is called the Tardu scale. And the Tardu has two components that we use. The, the V3 is the fast catch when you move it. And the V1, which is the maximum amount of movement you can achieve passively in a joint versus the patient's active range. Whatever they have left over from V1 would be considered to be contracture. So if they have a 150 degree catch at the end, then the um, 30 degrees of contracture. If you just practice standard medicine on your own, you can't evaluate for contracture. So what's happened is the uh, French and Belgian group has really worked hard to rediscover an older technique uh, described by Tardieu in the 50s and 60s of doing nerve blocks to decide whether a patient has a contracture. So some people's spasticity is just so complete that you cannot overcome the spasticity. But the way you can assess if someone truly has a contracture is you can paralyze the nerves that supply that group. So this is something that I've been working on for the last three years. You can actually take a paralytic agent and anesthetic such as lidocaine. They did it with cocaine apparently at the beginning or bupivacaine. You find a nerve, you inject around the nerve the way people inject alcohol or phenol and you paralyze that nerve. And when you uh, paralyze the nerve, the branches that it supplies of the muscles will let go, stop contraction, and you will know if there's a contraction or not, a contracture or not. So essentially we now know that we can differentiate between what's spasticity versus contracture, or in that early post-stroke shoulder, you might see the pattern is actually adhesive capsulitis and not even a contracture or spasticity. And that would be done via ultrasound guidance? So traditionally it's described by surface anatomy, sort of a few decades of work by the um, French and Belgian teams. <clears throat> we are now doing it under ultrasound, our group. There's quite a few papers that are coming out now from around the world looking at ultrasound guidance. My personal preference is it's much easier and better but we need those anatomical landmarks. 
it's something that we can all incorporate into our practice. Incredibly rewarding. Um, many times I thought someone had a contracture and they don't. They actually have full, complete range of motion in their limb. We just could not overcome the spasticity with toxin injections or our own exam. <clears throat> so when someone uh, gets to the point where they do develop a contracture, uh, I guess the role of orthopedic surgeons and uh, plastic surgeons becomes more prominent in, in management. Could you maybe speak a little bit about uh, about that when you would refer a patient? Right. And so, tradi- <clears throat> if you, traditionally, if you look at the spasticity literature in the uh, PMR world, <clears throat> we don't have very good access to surgical care. Um, if you talk to people in any city, I'll say in New York, who are your surgeons? They'll kind of say we don't really have any to work with, or we have one or two. For some reason, the pediatric population has always had that relationship. So the role of the uh, surgeon, being a plastic surgeon, neurosurgeon, or orthopedic surgeon, would be to work on you to figure out the patient has a contracture, so a limit on range of motion. How are we going to overcome that? And what you need to decide is what needs to be a tenotomy, because in some cases you can just cut a very uh, nice available distal tendon and cause it to release if it's something you want to eliminate the complete function. But in many cases, you just want to lengthen the tendon. So in a, a coronavirus foot pointing down, you might want to lengthen the, um, the muscle tendinous junction of the gastrox to give it a bit more length, versus if it's a terrible uh, range of motion, you might need to cut and really lengthen the Achilles tendon. The techniques that we're using now that are the most um, current would be to do a combination of neurectomy and surgical lengthening. And the reason why you need to do the combination is if you do a nerve block and you can get a joint to achieve its full functional range of motion, you can just cut the nerve and the joint will go back to normal. However, if you do the nerve block and that muscle can't get to its full length, you actually have to cut the muscle to allow it to lengthen. So the newest techniques are combinations of neurectomy to reduce the uh, spasticity to a muscle that can achieve its full range cut the tendons to the muscles that cannot get there, but then you might still be left with residual weakness. So you might get an ankle to neutral, but it, they don't have the strength to correct their, their varus angulation, and you need to get them to be able to do that. So you might need to do a tendon transfer. So that would be a splat procedure where you take the tibialis anterior, uh, divide it in two, plant it on the lateral border, and that tibialis anterior will now pull your outer foot up. So you might need to do neurectomy, lengthening, and a tendon transfer procedure. All of those take incredible work together with nerve blocks, with the surgeon, physiotherapist, EMG if you have it, to decide what's the candidate. And casting, when uh, is that used? Is that something that physiatrists do? Yeah, so our group, at um, particularly my colleague Rajiv Rebai, is doing a lot of work. We're uh, just submitting a couple of casting papers. Um, Stefano Carda and his group uh, from Switzerland and Italy are absolutely wonderfully advanced. And it's used, again, much more in the pediatric population. I would highly recommend anyone with problematic tone, if it's really tight, even before you go to surgery, try doing toxin injections or phenol, if that's what you're doing and then cast them serial, cast them uh, as best you can. One of the projects our group at UBC has been looking at as if you just cast someone without changing it for a week to 10 days, we are looking at their gait parameters because we were finding that people who got extra length out of their arm could suddenly walk faster. 
because they have a longer length of arm. They, they start to get a swing rather than an arm that's in front of them. So casting is very useful. In the lower extremities, a lot of people will do toxin injections and cast them uh, on three or four serial casts to give the, uh, the foot a good length. How often do they change the casts when they're doing that? It's seven to 10 days, depending on the protocol. Here, Dr. Winston shares two of his patients' success stories. Two that really stand up for me with our new approach was one woman who was um, pregnant. She had two kids and she came to her physiatrist and said, you know, I can't wear my leg brace anymore and because of the swelling from pregnancy. Very upset. So her physiatrist looked at the foot and said, I think we can totally help you and referred her to our um, intervention clinic. And we did a nerve block and lo and behold, her foot reduced to neutral very quickly. So she was able to walk as soon as we did a nerve block without her cast, a step through gait before it was one step together, one step together, because her foot was so plantar flexed. So we were able to do our one of our first crown neurotomies, which is freezing the nerve in the leg. And she was able to step through and now, you know, a year and a half later, she walks quite well without a brace. Another young woman who just came to see us uh, the uh, pediatric neurologist center, she wants to drive. So her, she's cerebral palsy. Her hand is fixed in pronation. So her whole life, she's never supinated. She wants to be able to hold the steering wheel without an adaptive vehicle. So the pediatric neurologist said, I'm not sure if you guys can do anything, but can you help her? So with our new way of thinking about spasticity, I examined her with the plastic surgeon. And I said, it's really funny. All of her tone is coming from the wrist. It's really not, in, in stroke, it's always the pronator teres. It's a proximal spasticity, one of the most common muscles we inject. I said, I can't move her wrist. So we decided to do a nerve block. And for the first time, I had ever done a nerve block of the median nerve, which innervates the pronator teres. But past that, it breaks into the anterior interosseous nerve. And it does the um, four muscles after the that area. So I did a mid forearm median nerve block so to paralyze the pronator quadratus. And lo and behold, I could fully supinate her, her wrist to 180 degrees. We assumed that after so many years, there'd be a degree of contracture there. So, but it didn't. Now I said to the plastic surgeon, what can we do with this? Because do you have to cut out and remove the pronator quadratus? And she said, ah, no. Nah. Not at all. We, the pronator quadratus anterior interosseous nerve branch is a redundant nerve. You don't need that muscle. We take that all the time for tendon transfers. So we, we just move it. Sorry, nerve transfers. We just move it. So she just basically removed the branch. Uh, she came back two months post-surgery. She could just almost supinate to 90 from nowhere. And then I realized her pronator teres still has some tone. So I put botulinum tox in the pronator teres. So now she can quite readily supinate to 90. She can't do 180, but 90 means you can hold a steering wheel. Mm -hmm. So I really love that case because it was a very functional task. Never in my treatment had I ever given someone that degree of extra range of motion. So now that we know about the fascicular arrangement of nerves and muscles for a nerve block, we knew exactly what structure to target. If we also took out the pronator teres with a surgical procedure, she'd have no ability to pronate. So we, we mix by a complete obliteration of one muscle and a partial of another. So that story I love because now she has a function she's never had in her life. And we weren't able to do that before. That story highlights an important point uh, in treating spasticity. My understanding is 
it doesn't matter so much the number of degrees of range of motion you can increase, but what a particular person's limitations are and what is needed to bring them to a functional level for different activities of, of their life. Yeah, we fo- we obsess in physiatry about um, potential and goals, and one of the most useful goals to assess spasticity is the goal attainment scale. So it's a, a scale that's hard to understand. If you achieve your goal, it's a zero. If you exceed it, it's a one or a two. And if you don't, it, it goes negative. We're not, we don't like zeros, but a zero is okay. Really asking the patient their function, because we really are not very good at ex- the uh, literature and the research is very difficult to show change in spasticity. So we really rely on a functional, can you meet your task? But even if you have a great result, you're so happy, the patient often say, doctor didn't work, I'm no better. And you'll show them a video, wow, you're so much better. But for them, it wasn't enough functional change that it was useful. The last question I had here was tips that you might have for primary care physicians, maybe a medical student who's listening, but they might go into some other specialty. Are there any pieces of advice you would suggest for managing or uh, approaching patients who have spasticity? That, that's excellent. So we, you know, in order to treat someone successfully, you really rely on the referral source. So most family doctors in their typical visit for, say, a post-stroke patient or someone who has multiple sclerosis, they have so many medical areas to manage, they don't even know where to start. So my preference is please just examine the limb, check to see if they have clonus, check to see if they have resistance to movement, because sometimes we get a referral and the limb is actually flaccid, it's just paralyzed, they can't use it. So getting someone's spasticity treated can extremely improve their quality of life, not just for them, even more importantly, if they are quite a high level of dependency for their caregivers. So if you can release a shoulder so that you can actually remove the clothes, put them back on, position them in bed, if they're in a care facility and it's really challenging to do peri care because you can't get the legs open and they're getting skin breakdown, it's really important to treat that. So I would probably err on the side of caution and refer people for their spasticity when you see them to try to get help. That's all for this episode. I hope the conversation gave you a better understanding of some spasticity basics. It's important to note that in this conversation, we did not talk about the role of intrathecal baclofen in spasticity management. If you would like to hear Dr. Winston and Dr. Burns from the University of Toronto commenting on intrathecal baclofen, you can find that in episode two of the Canada mini-series published in April 2020. A sincere thank you to Dr. Winston for sharing his time, knowledge, and experiences. Thanks to the Medical Student Council and the AAP for their support of the Pocket Mentor podcast. Thanks to you for listening. And if you found the podcast helpful, please share it with other medical students interested in the specialty. Don't forget to follow the AAP and the Medical Student Council on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook to stay informed of news and opportunities. Thanks again.